Welcome to Breaking the Chain, where we deep dive into the lives and experiences of entrepreneurs looking to shake up, change, and innovate their industries. In this podcast, we explore the challenges, successes, and everyday ups and downs of individuals fighting in the trenches for their dreams to become a reality. I'm your host, Nathaniel Chapman. Today, I'm joined by James Kerslake, CEO and founder of Tom Savano, with a mission of bringing premium, award-winning, bar-quality cocktails to your living room. Hi, James. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, everybody who's listening in for Episode 7 of Breaking the Chain. I'm joined with a very awesome guest today. We'll be discussing a lot about his business, Tom Savano, and we'll be discussing a lot about the journey he's been over the last well, last couple of years, even before that, with a lot of your product testing, etc. And, and uh, I'm really excited to have you on board today. So welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really, really looking forward to, to having a chat. I guess we've obviously had a chance to catch up and talk before we jumped onto the episode. But for our listeners coming into the show and, and to learn a little bit more about your business and understand who you are, maybe give us a quick overview of, of your company and your business and what you guys are trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Tom Savano Cocktails is the business, and we're in the luxury premixed drinks section in the al- alcoholic beverages market. And basically what I wanted to do is I wanted to create a bar quality cocktail from a bottle that had the same theater, the same experience, the same character that you get when you go to a real bar. So that every time you take a sip, you get transported away to somewhere beautiful in the world, imagining you're, you know, you're on a beach in Ibiza or looking at the sunset on the Amalfi Coast, all from a cocktail in a bottle. And that is basically what we set out to do. Oh, wicked. I think, I mean, I guess today that must be in such high demand with things like COVID and being people at home. No one's really been to a bar for a while in the current climate. So now, obviously, that's really nice to have that as an opportunity and easy for people to do measuring with the drinks that you have. But have you seen sort of a big impact from, I guess, the current environment with your brand? Oh, 100%. I mean, it, it was always a trend that was happening anyway, which is why I started developing it maybe three and a bit years ago. So this was a pre-COVID idea. And premiumization and craft was the big trend in the industry. And I saw there was a big gap in the market for, you know, high-end cocktails. And, you know, I think it would have taken taken up, but probably slower than it has. But COVID came along and overnight, it just became an overnight success. So, you know, we had four months of stock uh, based on sales projections in the warehouse and we sold it in eight days when the first lockdown happened. So, I mean, that's an idea of what COVID has done. And, you know, I don't show too many people this, but if you look at the COVID cases graph, and overlay it with our sales graph, they're almost a match. Right. So it's, it's, it's had a 100% positive co- correlation. You know, and I don't like to think that's a bad thing. I, I like to think it's because you know, we are living in, an, in a really dreadful time at the moment. But you know, we're offering something to people that can really help them, help them out and make things a little bit easier and better for them. What kind of product could we see in a bottle? Is it kind of looking like a mixed cocktails when you finish pouring this into your glass or your, you know, it, it, however you might take it? It's just like a finished cocktail that you might receive in a bar? Or what sort of... How's your product work? Yeah, absolutely. So it was always intended to be, because I don't like artificial things. I don't like anything that's sort of trying to be, you know, the real thing when it really isn't. But for me, it was always about having the exact same thing that came out of a top bartender shaker. So there's nothing artificial, no preservatives, anything like that. It's as if you've gone to the Savoy, guys whipped you up a margarita and it's just put it in a bottle. So you can just pour it over ice and drink it as though it's been served by, you know, a top mixologist. Well, that probably helped me because I think I always overpour my drinks anyway. <laughs> probably more alcohol than, than anything else. <laughs> but that that's quite interesting because obviously being able to take the different measurements and looking at drinks that you maybe you have a personal preference for or things that you want to do from a product development point of view, I think it's easy then if it's on the side, if you can just say, oh, I'm going to 
you know, have this martini after a long day. Although maybe you might want to be a bit heavy handed after a long work day. Yeah. I mean, and this, is, this is the problem in some ways is that they're way too easy to drink. You know, I've, I've engineered them to be incredibly smooth because everyone's got, you know, such vast different tastes when it comes to cocktails. And with an old fashioned, some people like a rye dominant old fashioned, some people like a bourbon Ford, some people like one that's a bit sweeter, you know, so everyone's got such different tastes. So that was probably my first big challenge is to, to make something that was high craft you know it's proper mixology level that a top bartender wouldn't turn his nose up at but that is also going to appeal to as many people as possible but you know by the same token you know it's not supposed to be if, if you don't want to have it how we serve it you're completely at liberty to do what you want if you want to put a bit more whiskey in if you want to add a splash of lime to your own tastes that's you know everyone's got their own taste and that's that's completely welcome but it gives you a great canvas to begin from and and most people just drink them straight you know, they're, they're, they're good enough as they are yeah well, how big is your line currently? How many different products you guys have you rolled out? Because the business went officially live in 2019, right? Yes. So we went live with four products at the time. And I, I really wanted to do five, but, you know, and I'm kind of glad I didn't in a way because the operational complexity of doing lots of different product lines, I didn't really appreciate until after I went live. And, you know, every single one is a whole suite of ingredients to order. It's a whole it's a new set of labels to think about. It's, it's, you know, you've got to do production, you've got to monitor stock and the, the logistics expand so quickly. So, you know, if anyone wanting to start a business, I'd say really keep your initial product offering very simple concentrate on doing that well and then once you feel you've got it under your belt add a couple more so we've got six cocktails in the range now we're about to launch a seventh and we've got an eighth one planned for bank holiday so it's gonna it's gonna be a rapidly expanding range this year oh brilliant and within those brands you've already been winning some awards off the back of some of those products right i mean i kind of read up that you'd had some three gold medals or, or silver medals within different product categories for certain awards is that right yeah, so um, so the thing about that is that when I decided that I wanted to do Tom Savano, I, I knew that I wanted to do something that didn't exist in the category. I wanted to do super premium, super luxury, as good as what you get at the Savoy, you know, and this is very different than what was in the category at the time, you know, very cheap offerings, you know, uh, gin and a tins, uh, mojitos for two pounds, things like that. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to, you know, sell a cocktail and I and I costed it up, this is going to cost 12, 13 pounds a bottle. Who's going to pay twelve pounds a bottle when you can get a two pound mojito from MS unless yeah. you really believe that the quality is just so much different and better? And I think the only way anyone's going to believe that is if we've got some awards. You know, we've got a few medals to show that independent spirits professionals have tasted it and agree this stuff is is light years ahead of what else was on the market. It's you know the same caliber as a single malt. And of course, that's the story I tell everyone. But the truth is, I was just insecure about the taste of the drinks myself. And <laughs> I, was, I was about to go live with this product I poured two years of my life in. And I thought they were great cocktails. My biggest fear was they're going to go out and we're just going to get all these negative reviews, people pouring in saying this tastes terrible, way too sweet, don't like it. So it was almost more for myself to reassure that I'm not crazy, that this has actually got some, some legs to it. That was the main reason why I entered the awards, but it's turned out to be a good idea. I was thinking this, you know, that when you think of like mixed drink, I always, you know, gin in the cans and, you know, on the way to Twickenham or to go see a rugby game or something like that, right? But you were saying, hey, this is a premium cocktail within a bottle. Because I always think you go to a bar, you have someone doing the shaker, you know, it's all being made real time in front of you or whatever that premium experience. How can you ensure that quality exists within your products? I mean, obviously, I guess you're using high quality alcohol and, and ingredients and things of that nature, but how does that contribute to your, your product process? Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a really good question because this is one of the big concerns that we've got a lot of consumer history to overcome here and really not re-educate people, but 
you know, give people some confidence that this is a different product than what they're used to. And again, this isn't the sort of thing you drink on a train. It's not something you probably just drink on the way to Twickenham because you get absolutely hammered. You know, these are 20, <laughs> they're 20% ABV. So you, you drop a couple of these and you're not going to be walking. So it's, 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 it's almost for a different market. It's for when you're entertaining at home, you want to have a nice cocktail with dinner, invite friends over, have, you know, Zoom cocktails is now a thing, obviously. The kind of thing you'd get in a bar, a proper old fashioned, you're not going to, you know, take a train to Wales and drink an old fashioned. It's, it's a different sort of use case. So, you know, I think that it's about positioning. It's making sure that we're sold in the right places, that we're marketing it as this is when you drink the drink, this is what it's for. But in terms of, you know, giving that confidence, I suppose, in the quality, everything about it has to be super premium. You know, like you said, yeah. the, the ingredients have to be premium and not just that, but, you know, I, I didn't just want to do, you know, Grey Goose martinis, things like that, which you can get at any bar. For me, I wanted to have some uniqueness to it and the fact that we've actually done a lot of research into really nice craft spirits, things you've never heard of, you've never tasted, but are better than Grey Goose. You know, there's these passionate distillers living in this tiny little community somewhere who farm their own botanicals and they're making this for a hundred years off an old family recipe. It's better than Grey Goose. You know, this is what you want to be drinking. This is what the people in the know would want to drink. And I think that's what justifies the price in some ways. The fact that we've done this research, we've got all these great things to introduce you to. And then it's just how you present it. So, you know, the bottles, they're heavy, they're proper flint glass, like a, you know, like a nice whiskey bottle. The labels are matte finish with a bit of grittiness and gloss so that they feel amazing in your hand. It's got gold foil, everything about it. You're holding it. You think this feels expensive. It looks expensive. And I think that's, you need every element in the chain. And, you know, when I came to do the design for the bottles, I, I approached a branding agency because I thought, well, I'm not a designer, I'm not a branding guy. I need pros to come in and make this look, you know, the business. And it was supposed to be a six-week project. And because I'm such a perfectionist, I didn't let them go until it took eight months to get the final labels finally <laughs> done. Because And luckily, I was on a flat fee, which they were really, really, really miffed about. <laughs> the, the relationship really soured towards the end because they were giving so much of their time for my iterations and tweaks. But I wasn't happy until it looked so good that I knew that it would justify the price. And that's, I suppose, the, the attention to detail that's gone into this. But that's actually been a big part of your product as a whole, right? Because it took, I know the company launched in 2019, but it actually your commitment to being a perfectionist across the process and your product means that you're working on this far before that, right? And actually, this was a kind of a, a thing where, hey, this is where I want to make sure that this product is is perfect. And maybe talk to us a little bit about how being a perfectionist has played into the product development itself, not just maybe the labels. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, the first thing is to find out, okay, so what makes the classic recipes? So for me, it was always about trying to do something which people are familiar with. And uh, one of my favorite anecdotes I always tell is that I, I used to want to get into the ice cream business, and I did a whole bunch of market research and one of the stats that stood out to me, it's one of the biggest you know, lessons I tell people now is that 66% of the ice cream sold globally is vanilla. Yeah, and so when you've got one flavor that occupies two thirds of the world's market, why would you come out and create this kind of you know, fudge brownie, banoffee with nuts flavor? It's fun, it's exciting. I had no idea that. It is ridiculous. That's crazy. It's absolutely mental. Yeah, 66%. I mean, that's my favorite ice cream. So that makes sense. <laughs> no, exactly. And I think I think second is chocolate at 14% and at about 10% is all nut varieties. So basically, if you want the biggest slice of the pie, go with the classics. You know, I could come up with a new cocktail, some kind of Italian spritz, whatever. No one's ever heard of it. You know, people might try it as a bit of a novelty, but they're going to go back to a margarita. They're going to go back to a Negroni. So straight away, that was my first decision. Stick to the classics, but do them perfectly so what is the perfect negroni what's the perfect old-fashioned what can you not improve on if i got this i'd be like this cannot get better than this mm. and that's what i wanted to start doing so 
it was basically about researching the recipe, finding out what the classic one was, then finding out what other bartenders had done as kind of riffs or variations, trying them all, getting an idea in my head of what I liked, what I thought made it better, what made it worse. You know, does this improve the classic? Does it detract from the classic? And once I had a bit of an idea about where, how far you could stray without ruining, you know, the, the, the recipe, then it was about ordering, you know, 50 bottles of spirits and liqueurs and all different kinds of bitters and stuff and just playing George's Marvelous Medicine in my kitchen for hours every evening. And I would come home from work. The first thing I'd do, I would just like whip out the bottles and I'd start mixing. And for about two or three hours, I would just try recipes. And the problem is, you know, your palate's gone after about four or five tastes and you can't really taste what's going on. You always end up hammered every single night. It doesn't sound like a bad project testing Well, it's, when you've tasted seven drinks that you didn't really like that got you drunk, you're now drunk for drinks you didn't enjoy and it's, it gets rude. Look, James, if you need a tester, you know, you just reach out to me <laughs> and I'll come down and help you out as much as possible. I don't know how accurate I'll be after the first drink, but... Uh... Yeah, well, me neither sometimes. I mean, <laughs> this is it. So it's got to taste good, you know, when you finally come up with that wow recipe and usually it takes me about three or four hundred recipes i would say is the average to come up with the perfect recipe that's insane so you must there must be just slight adjustments that you're making each time as well very slight like it, it could be 0.2 grams less of something but you you wouldn't believe it really does make a difference because it's about the sum of the parts is more than you know the parts themselves and you can't it's a bit it's a bit alchemical in a way you can't really predict it it's just all of a sudden Everything blends together. Everything works together. You can taste each flavor in the right balance. They're all accompanying each other rather than fighting each other. And this, when you just that could literally be half a gram difference when it, the lime juice is slightly too strong. So then it dulls the taste of one of the other ingredients. And it's that sort of level of perfection. I mean, obviously, you know, it gets narrower and narrower. So it starts with okay, what's the right tequila to use? How what's the lime tequila balance? So you start with the big stuff. And what recipe am I using? Once you get to something you think, do you know what, this is starting to taste quite good, then it's small refinements. And, you know, the old-fashioned is one of the simplest recipes. It's whiskey, bitters, and sugar. I mean, it's the simplest cocktail. That took 600 recipes to get right. It was the longest one out of all of them because there's so many different kinds of whiskeys. There's so many different kinds of sugar, bitters, balances. How do you get that orange taste? You know, you want to squeeze a bit of orange peel over the old-fashioned when you drink it. Yeah. But how do you capture that in a bottle? So it was trying to replicate all the, the elements to get a smooth drink that's got punch, that's got complexity, that's got all the elements of rye whiskey with the smoothest of bourbon. You know, it, it took a long time to go through all the different combinations. Especially since it's a hard drink. I mean, it's one of my favorite cocktails, to be honest. So when I go to a bar, I think I do find it very hard for someone to really replicate, you know, that perfect drink. And you're right, sometimes it's even off of personal preference. You know, like what would somebody prefer a little bit more in that drink, which makes it probably even more difficult to, to make sure that you can get something in line with what well, I guess what everyone's expectation is when they're made one. But yeah, most best cocktail makers I do really enjoy when they put it together. But even though it seems simple, it's not always the easiest drink to get right. No, it's a, and the thing is, because everyone knows an old-fashioned and the people who drink it, they're going to really know it inside out. So you can't mess it up. Like if you go in and you do a bad old-fashioned, that's your company's reputation gone. You know, because it's the one cocktail, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it right. So I, that's probably, again, why I spent so long. And I thought I had a good recipe after about 400 ones. And then I thought, this is it. This is the best one. And I tasted another old-fashioned somewhere else. And I was like, damn it, that one's better than mine. <laughs> and then straight away, my one was no longer good enough. I, I thought it was good. And then as soon as I tried the better one, I'm like, this is the new standard. So back to the drawing board. And, of course, the challenge with all of this is it's like, you know, it's, it's one thing to make a great old-fashioned to use some great whiskeys, but it's also got to be economically viable for me. Like, you know, there's no point if I spend £100 on a bottle of whiskey to make a great old-fashioned because I can't sell a bottle of cocktail at £12 if the whiskey costs me 100 quid a bottle. 
So it's about that balance between price point of the ingredients and something which tastes the best version of it that it can possibly be. And that's been a real challenge. Look, James, I'd like to kind of take this back a few steps because obviously your career started in a very different direction. You know, you've obviously come to a point now where you're able to build cocktails. It's obvious you've got a passion for this area. And you actually started your career in software development and you actually worked within hedge funds and financial institutions, right? And that's where you spent the bulk of your career. And let's talk talk more about your story because obviously you went through a very different beginning of your career to get to where you are today. Yeah, so I grew up in New Zealand. That was where my parents chose to to raise the family. So I did school there, went to university, and my parents were both software developers. That was their thing. So I got into using computers from a young age. I was a bit of a geek growing up and, you know, very, not studious. I didn't like studying, but I was, you know, very bright at school. And I don't think I ever utilized my potential. I was one of these people who, you know, was inherently smart, but just got bored very easily and had very low you know, ADHD attention span. So I could never apply myself well enough to do well. By that stage, by the time I left school, it was like, well, what do you want to do? I had no idea. I didn't really care, to be honest. I was just like, well, I just want to just chill and relax and enjoy life. And so my parents pushed me down a software development course. It was a three-year degree. And I was like, fine, you know, I'll do what, no issues. So yeah, and I learned how to code. I never really enjoyed it. It was never a passion. It was just because you know I was directed to do it. And you know, coming out of school, you're not used to making independent decisions. So when someone's sort of funneling your decisions in your life, you kind of just accept that because you think, okay, well, no responsibility for me. Fine, I'll just I'll go with the flow. And by that stage, I wanted to be a filmmaker. That's what I realized I really wanted to do in life. And I wanted to come to London, study at film school. I was about to graduate with this computer science degree. And the university magazine were offering jobs in London to work for Barclays Investment Bank for software developers. Uh, and it was a very brief period of time they were recruiting from the Antipodean cultures. And they said, you know, if you get the job, a lot of people applied, you know, they're only offering, I think, two jobs. And they would fly you over, they'd set you up with some money, set you up with the flat to start with, you know, and you'd basically have your career in investment making and technology sorted. So I thought, great, I'll do that, save some money for two years, then I'll go to film school in London and and go do what I really want to do. So from day one, it was always a means to an end. I was never doing it because I liked software development. It was just a means to an end. And then the the film career never really panned out the way I thought it was going to do. Reality sets in and you think I'm not going to be Steven Spielberg. I'll probably be 40 sleeping on my friend's couch making indie documentaries. So <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe the dream is not what I thought it was. I think that's what it's always been for me. I've always wanted big success. And that's kind of why I came to London. Like New Zealand, you could get a job, you could have a family. That's great. But I really wanted to prove myself and do something with my life and achieve some sort of success. And I think... That's been the story of my life, trying to find out what that thing is going to be. And I thought it was going to be filmmaking. It turned out not to be. So I thought, okay, what else? Tried to write a book, you know, ran a few other businesses and basically spent 20 years having a career, you know, quote, career in investment banking and technology, not really intending to because it was never what I wanted to do. And every year I've been thinking, how do I get out of this? Yeah. But it's apparent that you've done things that are very creative, right? So you're saying, oh, I wanted to be working in film or I was trying to write a book or, and then it's come into product development as a project and a process. And I do some career coaching and with kids actually, kind of like from 16 to 18. And we sit down with these guys and, and, and it's really about understanding what their options are for their future. You know, and it's part of a, a really cool program called Future Frontiers. But one of the things I say to them, and I, I feel like I repeat it in my day job where I speak to even execs and people 10, 15, 20 years down the line is, you know, you, you don't have to stick something out. You know, you don't have to, you can go to school for something and, and your career can change or, you know, pick something that you're interested in or find a program that you want to work on that you can be successful in. But people change careers all the time. And I think one of the biggest things I got to give to some of the kids that I've worked with in the past is say, look, I'm, 
you know, I'm 30 years old. I still don't know if this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. You know, and, and I think I wish sometimes people would have told you that when you were younger. Do you know what I mean? Because especially when they come from, I think, our parents' generation or older generations, it was like, get a job, stick it out, you know. And I think it, it's reiterated, and I mentioned this on previous podcasts, it reiterates a little bit from like our parents and our parents' parents, probably what they experienced to want you to have stability and, and to stick out a job and get that career gold watch. The world has changed a lot since then. And I think this is why it's really nice to have people like you come on the show and explain a little of your story because you're right. It's not always what someone wants to do, but then all of a sudden an opportunity arises or, you know, you, you because you've given yourself that breathing space or even some of the skills that you learned in your first job or in your career today has led you on the path to where you've gotten to. It's just taking maybe the risk and the jump to to make that happen. But you mentioned you mentioned some previous businesses, so I don't know if you want to share them, but are there other companies that you looked at first and how far along down the line are you in your uh, entrepreneurship journey? Yeah, I mean, I've you know, it was back in 2007, so about 15 years ago, I started my first business and that was a cafe. So it was a healthy food bar cafe serving, you know, really nice upmarket artisan food for people's lunches for office workers you know the sort of thing that's on every street corner now but back then you had Pret-a-Manger a sandwich shop and that was it yeah and so it was so far ahead of its time that you know I picked the wrong location you know it was a bad time it was the credit crunch so people didn't have six seven pounds to spend on lunch at the time so you actually opened a storefront yeah oh wow a full cafe I say cafe it was more of like a food bar like one of these chains yeah so we sold sandwiches we sold we had a made to order salad bar we did you know, made to order smoothies soups porridge in the morning all kind of you know, really lovely artisan breads and things like that. It was, again, really ahead of its time, a bit of a juice bar as well, very kind of California vibe. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and again, it was my first business venture coming from a family who, like you said, they're very nine to fivers, get the gold watch. And I think, the, you know, one thing that occurred to me when you're saying that is that I think the reason they want us to do that is because it's very multi-generational, that strategy. It's like they work hard to dig themselves out of maybe a poor upbringing so that they're middle class, they've got the mortgage paid off, they can inherit some money to you. You can give you a good education so that you can then build on that and go off and do something. So when you throw that all up and say, right, I'm going to go be an entrepreneur, they feel like you're almost like tearing up their entire life plan that they had done to, to give to you. So maybe that's why they get so difficult about it. I always believe that being an entrepreneur and loads of people that are uh, listening to this probably don't have some of the benefits that maybe yourself and I might have had where if you're coming a little bit from a background where you can have the opportunity to get that education and get a good, and then be doing something on the side rather than just jumping straight into it. I mean, I'm grateful to my parents every day. I don't think I ever really wanted to go down the career route myself. You know, I own my own business and I wouldn't have it any other way, but I, I'm not always adverse to the, you know, saying, well, I, I do have that comfort area for me to make that leap, you know, and to take that jump. And many people still go ahead and do it anyway, which I have a, a lot of admiration in people. Um, you know, it's being smart. You know, it's, you know, I also have run into people that have gone into being an entrepreneur and, and taken out mortgages on ideas and prospects that, you know, you have to be realistic that sometimes these things don't work out. And as much as they are good fun and you learn a lot from them, you know, many times people go through various different businesses before they find where their true passion or what they're, you know, I know I hate using the example because I'm sure everyone hears it all the time that you, you have people, you have to say, fail seven businesses before you get there. But I think you have to be realistic that you are challenging something or doing something a bit differently. And I'm sure you'll mention this as you get through some of your other businesses, but the fact that you're doing so much market research for the ice cream company and talking about that with your new product, I wouldn't be surprised if some of that has come because you were like, oh, I opened this <laughs> cafe, which maybe wasn't responded to the way I would have thought so. Maybe part of the software developer in you as well. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I suppose that's one thing the software development has given me. It's this real sense of logic and iteration. And I think being a problem solver and thinking things through to think what could go wrong here? You know, what are the variables? What can change? What can't change? What's fixed? You know, what places of the equation can I tweak? And what things am I not in control of? And thinking it from that point of view, I think you you don't set yourself up for success, but you you tighten the criteria for failure, I think. So it's harder to fail because you've, you've really looked after certain areas of the business. And I think when you go into your first couple of businesses, you've got no idea what you're doing. You've got no idea what the landscape's like. And so you're leaving yourself vulnerable on so many fronts. It's like just walking through a safari park with no protection. You know, like yeah. in retrospect, had you known what was in the park, you probably would have decided on a certain type of vehicle, you know, a certain type of like sleeping apparatus to kind of, you know, once you know the dangers, you can prepare. But when you don't know what the dangers are, you, you go and blindly think this is great, but you, you really are super vulnerable as a startup and as a business. There's so many ways you can go wrong, so many ways you can lose all your money. You know, every week something new can happen to do that. And I think that's what being older and having a few failed businesses helps is that you're now ahead of time aware of some of these things. So you can plan, which gives you the confidence to proceed deeper into the business. Because the more you go with the business, it's, it's one thing to have an idea to come up with a bit of a product to sell to a few friends. You know, as the business grows and starts to expand in revenue and you start talking about getting investors on board and you're deeper and deeper and it can be really scary. And if you don't have these controls in place and confidence about what you're doing, you know, there's no way you'll be able to proceed any further because you'll just you'll second guess yourself, you'll drop the ball, you'll make all kinds of errors because you feel pressured. Unless you've got a, a business mentor as a father that you've always grown up with for the last 15 years, it's inevitable that you have to have tried your hand at some stuff and failed to, to learn these lessons. Well, but you know what? Many times that's the reason you learn the lesson anyway, because then you still probably, you could have a mentor. Sometimes I was telling you not to do something or a different business idea, and I go ahead and do it anyway, and then learn the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> that must have been quite hard. So you're working by day still as a, a software developer and then trying to run, because I imagine opening a store or, or with that first principle, that's got to be quite difficult to do a full-time job and that, do you know, or, or did you take time out or... Yeah. No, no, I didn't at all. And this, this is the thing with me. I, I'm a bit of a multitasker and I always think I can just overload my, my schedule and my work you know, plan to, to accommodate stuff like this. And, and I usually keep up, to be fair. But I mean, it's certainly hard. And that was probably another reason for the failure. You know, These sort of things, you've got to be on the ground every day, getting the customer feedback, getting the, the feel, responding. Whereas I was just thinking, right, I'll go for an hour and a half in the morning, set up for the day, take, you know, the, we're going to try this day, we're going to try that look at everything, make sure the store looks good. I'd come back at lunch, do a little bit of work for maybe 30, 45 minutes in my lunch break. And then I'd go in after work to do the cash up and, you know, things like that. Um, and I'd spend my weekends on store renovations and coming up with new ideas. And I thought that would be enough. But it's interesting. It's like a, a general for the battle sending his his orders out without ever once actually being on the battlefield. Yeah. So you think your orders are the right ones and all it would take would be 30 minutes down there on the actual battlefield itself to realize that, no, these orders I'm giving are actually completely wrong. Yeah. And you kind of almost need to be embedded in that business or have, if you've got previous experience in the industry where you've been on that, because that's also quite challenging to step into something that might be different than what you've done before. So what did you hop to next? So there was a, there was a couple of things. So the, the next thing was a an app. It was basically so that you could split 
the bills of food and drink at a bar or a pub when you went out to, to drink. So, you know, rather than having to go up and queue at the bar, you know, wait 15, 20 minutes to place your order, then if you're sitting down with six friends and you all want something different, how do you pay for it? Who's around is it? I still think that's a good idea. Oh, it, it is. Sure, does that something like that exist or something? I've never heard of something. <laughs> it does, you know, and especially with COVID, this is another thing which would have been perfect for COVID, right? Yeah. Without, without having to go up to bars and that clumping at the bar, you could just order from your app. I mean, this is exactly the sort of thing that could have done very well. And even about a year before COVID, I went to a, a food technology event at the Excel Center, and there was about eight companies doing exactly what I was developing. And so I just, I, I never got any traction with it. I was very much product first. I just sat there coding, coming up with this platform to do it with. And I never once went and spoke to a bar manager. I never started building relationships. I never started getting a social following. And so I ended up with a product with no interest of people to buy it. So that was what I did wrong there. I, I thought I started with the product and thought, get a working product, go out and people will want to buy it. And so that was that was a big mistake I made. I spent two years on that and I eventually just decided to walk away because I thought, you know what, I'm not getting much uptake from this. I don't feel like I'm making inroads. I don't really know how to do this. I'm working full time. I can't really go walk around bars and sell this. I've got no money to hire someone. So do you know what, I'll, I'll walk away from this one. So when was this about? So 2007, you'd launched the, the restaurant bar during the recession and obviously a very difficult time to go through that. And then when, when did this lead to the app development piece? This would have been 2013. Okay. So a bit of a gap between your first venture and your second venture. Yeah, so it's a couple of years, I think, yeah. to lick my wounds and uh, and to get some sense of uh, sanity back again. Because <laughs> I ran the cafe for four years. Oh, okay. So it went from 2007 to almost... To 2011. To, to, so it lasted for several years, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, and it probably shouldn't have, to be fair. And that's the other lesson I learned, is that when fundamentally your business is not profitable, then stop pumping your own money in to keep it afloat. That was, that was yeah. a big lesson I learned on that one. Oh, characteristic of being an entrepreneur or looking at taking on new business ideas is being able to take that risk, right? And there's always risk associated with launching a new business plan and a, a new business idea. But you've got to sometimes be realistic and, and be looking at the numbers and know, I think sometimes being able to call it, you know, knowing when it's not the right investment is sometimes just as important as, um, you know, live to fight another day, yeah, as it were, rather than sinking with the ship. Not any time, but yeah, I mean, money is important. It'll save you losing a lot of money. It's like chasing your losses when you're gambling. It's like some point you've got to know when to walk away from the table. And you won't just save the money that you would have lost, but you'll save time, which is the most important thing. Because from the cafe, if I closed it after two years, that's two years of my life I could have been working on the next idea, which is just so crucial. And, it, and again, I think another important thing is which I've really done with this new business, Tom Savannah, is you've got to know how much of your own money you're willing to put into this. And you've got to draw a line saying, when it's gone, it's gone. Not just keep saying, well, maybe another two grand, another five grand, another two grand. At some point, you've got to say, that's it. No more money's going in. If it fails, it fails. It's, you know, you've got to have that, that, that capped loss. It reminds me of going to the casino. It, it literally is. You know, <laughs> it's the same thing. You know, like when you go to a casino, you might go to say, "Well, I've got a hundred quid," and you've got to be prepared to lose that money. When you walk into the casino, you've got to be hundred percent accepting that. Right, I'm totally happy if I lose two hundred pounds. And it's the same thing with investing or running a business. If you sink fifty grand into business, you've got to know you, you can't think, "Well, I can invest this, but I'm probably going to get it back." You've got to be completely upfront and say, "Right, this fifty grand is now gone. If I ever see a return from this, this is great." but you've got to consider it gone the minute it leaves your account. Yeah, I have a very similar mindset. Alternatively, you'll feel a lot better for it as a as a business owner. I think it actually helps lessen the amount of stress that you might receive. You know, because if you're thinking constantly like, "Oh, this is this is money that needs to be reciprocated," and and you've made that investment maybe on that premise, you know, that's where you can sometimes make some 
difficult business, maybe the wrong business decisions. Do you know what I mean? Because you're kind of like, actually, no, I need to make a quick buck rather than sticking to what you want for your your business venture. This is brilliant. I feel like I need a whole show to explore each of your different, <laughs> different startups. So what, what was next or what else did you end up working on over that that time frame? There's a couple of ideas I had, which never really got off the ground. They, they only ever got about six months in. So one was a dating app, basically a dating app based around creativity. So rather than just chatting and openers and pictures, the idea was that you'd sort of start with the opener of a story and someone would continue it. And you'd sort of create a bit of a fantasy and see how your imaginations and creativity play with each other. And that was called Tail. That's what I called it at the time, Chasing Tail. Ah, uh, there you go. <laughs> I thought it had potential. But again, it was one of these things that I was, I'd only dipped my toes into the world of the dating world. I had so much more to learn about it before I could even think. I feel like someone's listening to this, writing down all these <laughs> ideas right now. Do you know what I mean? You just start seeing Tail pop up. <laughs> the other one I called Find Joe. And that was basically a search portal where you could find people with certain professions in your local area. So connecting independent workers, obviously your tradespeople, massage therapists, dog walkers, childcare, all of the stuff. And basically I want to shop local, you know, rather than go to these big agencies and it would empower people to then put their services up and get paid. So a bit like rated people, task grabber, that kind of thing. So again, something that's now been done. <laughs> Does your brain ever turn off? It feels like there's like all these ideas. Is that, is that kind of like your personality anyway? Or your, is your mind constantly thinking of how things could be improved or changed? It's not like, oh, I'm trying to innovate within the alcohol industry for 10 years. You know, it's this and app and then restaurant and you know there's there's two parts inside my head there's the thinker and the processor then there's the creative part which is almost like a separate entity it's not me it's something else and it's in there and it just says stuff to me you know it's like what about this and all and you can't help it all of a sudden there's an idea in your head and you're like you know what that's a really good idea but i'm working on this other idea so i'll file this way i mean i've already got ideas i want to move on to next after tom savano <laughs> i have to i have to file them all in the backlog for things that i'm going to work on in maybe five years time because i can't work on everything at once but it's it's, it's literally like this creative tap, which just you can't control when stuff comes out. You can't force it. When something comes out, all of a sudden it's like, oh, here's another creative idea. Let's file this one away. And you just start filing them away and then thinking how you can now take a creative idea and actually execute it and do something in reality, which is the tough part, obviously. Where does Tom Savano become an idea? I mean, obviously, you probably enjoy your cocktails, but there must have been a time where you're going, you know what, this is where I think there is a gap in the market or something I want to explore. How did that idea even come to you? So the, I suppose the Genesis moment was actually back in 2010. So this is when I was running the cafe and I would gone to Ibiza for the first time with my sister and a friend and we went to Cafe Mambo on the Sunset Strip and I'd never been, no idea what to expect, just been told it was good. So ordered my mojito, we're just sitting there having a bowl of chips, watching the sunset and all of a sudden then the music starts chilling out and everyone's just stops talking and it's like City of Angels when everyone just turns in the same direction to watch the sunrise but this is time as the sunset, then obviously the ball goes below the water and everyone claps and it's amazing. And yeah. it was just, it gave me such chills, that moment with the mojito, the music, the, the beauty of the sunset. I was just like, this is one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had. And so when I got back to London, I was just trying to replicate this every day. I'd be racing home from work to my house in Surrey, mixing up a couple of mojitos in the kitchen, jumping up onto my roof. Didn't even have a roof terrace. I was literally on my roof on a deck chair watching the sunset over the Surrey Valley with, you know, Ibiza tunes on my Spotify. Did it uh, live up to that moment? It, it wasn't bad. Yeah. <laughs> we had a big valley down there and the sunset right down the middle of the valley. So it was actually quite beautiful. So, and I did that for about four months. Every night, I just couldn't stop doing it. I loved it. I was like, this is my happy place. And I think for the next four years, I kept doing that. Everywhere, I'd go down to Clapham Common and take some mojitos. I'd put them in a bottle so I could transport them. And of course, that's when the idea for bottle cocktails came. Not till many years later, but that's when I first started doing it. 
I'd invite all my flatmates down and I'd make mojitos for everyone and pass the bottles around and we'd watch a sunset. I'd take them to cinemas because, you know, I want to have a drink when I'm watching a movie. When I went on board a plane, I'd take them on board planes because I didn't want the cheap wine they served in flight or my good mojitos. So it was almost like a little security blanket, my mojitos that I just took everywhere I went. And then obviously, you know, that lasted for about four years. And then I started diversifying, learning of, you know, some different cocktails, you know, passion fruit martinis and lychee martinis, these sort of cheap and easy ones. And yeah, and I've just been doing that for about 10 years in total since that first Ibethan trip. And it was just this one moment I'd finished with the fine Joe and the dating app ideas. I think they were on the back burner. I was out in my garden and a friend said, my sister would say, can you do cocktails for her wedding? Because, you know, they're always having your cocktails when they come in for barbecues. They think they're amazing. They'd like them at the wedding. And so, of course, that's when the creative side of my brain kicks in and says, oh, is there a business idea here? You know, if people love these cocktails so much, can I make some money from it? And even then, I'm not even, I didn't even thought about applying it to, because my sister is about to, is getting married or about to get married. And you think of how expensive it is. You you either do a bartender and then you're paying the per drink cost and, uh, you know, all of a sudden it's all this additional expense. And actually how amazing if you could just have premium, you know, like something where you know it's going to be a good drink and you're going to enjoy it. And you can order it in, in bulk for an event, even. Yeah, exactly. And it, you don't, it doesn't matter if you're out on the cliff or on a beach and you don't have the facilities. It's there. You don't need anything to mix them. So, you know, that was one of the big markets I saw initially. But, you know, this is when I then applied my hat on of all the lessons I've learned and said, right, if you are going to jump into new business, what can you take from your previous lessons to make sure that this one's successful? You know, and there was things like make sure it's scalable. So my first idea was like, well, maybe I could have a cart that I go around to people's weddings. Maybe I could do cocktails that way. And I could maybe then franchise it and get a whole bunch of guys doing that. And I just thought it's just not scalable enough. There's only so many weddings a year. This, it's very seasonal. There's only so many months of the year weddings take place. There's only so many people doing this. And so I eventually iterated on the idea until I came up with the idea of doing it as a product. You could then put in any supermarket, in any restaurant, any hotel, any country in the world. And I was like, right, now we're talking the kind of scale that I want to do. The same recipe, the same liquid, if you're selling 100 bottles or 10 million bottles, the business idea is fundamentally the same. And that was when I got started to get you know, excited about the idea. Yeah, the idea starts to get rolling. It's a, a long way to come to actually say, oh, now we have a product. So one, you obviously started with the product testing, which we talked at the beginning, to kind of iron out what you wanted within these drinks. Is that the right journey that you went on you say all right now i've got a couple of products that i like how do i then launch this as a brand and a business yeah exactly the first thing i wanted to make sure i had something which i was actually confident to sell because it's like if i can't do a cocktail that's as good as a bar cocktail from a bottle then there's no point even looking at this business so let's see if it's actually doable first because you know if it's doable why aren't the big guys doing it why isn't someone already doing it if it's possible maybe there's a reason so i had to prove to myself that i was confident that the product could work first And then, like you said, the decision came, okay, well, I want to launch this. How do I do that? And I don't think I quite anticipated how far there was from A to B at that point. I thought, I've got these great products. Sure, let's just launch them. Okay, so what do I need to do? But then it was licenses, it was legals, it was branding, it was labels, it was sourcing bottles, sourcing corks, building a website, finding a fulfillment warehouse, setting up all the logistics. The amount of things that needed doing, I started to create a bit of like a project plan uh, in monday.com just to try and track everything. Or product placement. Will they give you a discount or something? <laughs> <laughs> they just they pop up all over my screen. Do you know what I mean? When you're on YouTube, it's like, oh, I get it, monday.com. But I, <laughs> And yeah, and then by the time I looked at my full project plan of how to get to launch, I was like, I can't believe how much there is to do. It was, but I committed to this point. I put this money in. So I was like, right, head down. Let's see if we can launch before Christmas. And at, the, at that time, I had about four or five months left. So it literally took me 
from the time I had four recipes I was fully happy with and thought, I love these, um, I want to launch this. It was about five months until I actually got them launched. So it wasn't, it wasn't quick. Actually, maybe it was longer because I suppose I started the, do you know what? Because I, I started the branding project in April and we launched in the 1st of December. So it's about seven months, seven and a half months. Yeah. When I'm sure you're ready to get it going as well. You know, you, you're like, I've got the product now. Right? I've got something I want to sell. And then you're not able to launch it for seven months. That feels like a long time. You know, when we speak to other guests, what I'm trying to say is that usually they're doing product development and you were doing that for a long time anyway. So if we really think of the total time it took for you to have these products, it's a lot longer. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Because I should have probably been doing with this other stuff, this route to market at the same time as the product development. And that's maybe a mistake I made. Maybe it's taken longer than it should have. But again, it was only one of me and I was working a day job so but that's kind of the nice way to have it anyway isn't it you're working on something that's a recipe and then have, actually putting your passion or into the product itself and then going hey actually this is something yeah just focus on one thing at a time rather than spreading yourself over every discipline trying to get it all ready at the same time just you know say right recipes first and once i've done that right now what's next and yeah i mean i'm a sole founder and that's really difficult you know when you're one person you don't have one or two other co-founders to bounce off and to share the load with that's probably been the hardest part of the journey being a sole founder let alone having a day job on top of doing it yeah. as well. So it's been incredibly difficult to keep up with the, the workload and the volume. So we, when your products then went live just from December of last year yeah, or from December of the year prior, when, when were they finally? December 2019. Oh, wow. Okay. So we had About a year, three months has been launched now. Wow. And, and was they just being sold initially just from internet sales or what was your approach to getting? So now you've gone, all right, I've, I've built the labeling product and I guess you have to set up uh, the manufacturing for these sort of products, or were you still just doing it at home, you know, and, and bottling it yourself? Yeah, I mean, you've got to make these decisions. It's like, do I outsource it or do I make it myself? And so I decided at this scale and this volume, I wanted to make it myself. Yeah. So I had to learn all about bottling technology, about filtration, all these different things. So that was another area of knowledge I've spent, you know, a number of months getting up to speed with and trying my own hands at all these things. I've got all the equipment to do it. And it was great. And I, th and I think in some ways it's good to become the expert yourself rather than rely on other people. And I'm, I'm really glad I, I chose to do it that way. Yeah, you've got to set up the manufa manufacturing. You've got to get the customers. That's the hard bit. So, you know, you've got a website, but of course, no one's visiting your website because no one knows about it. So, you know, you think, right, we need some social ads. We need to go on Instagram. So I started building up Instagram followers, posting cocktail content. And, you know, then we did a few Facebook paid ads to direct people. Mm. Had a landing page where people could kind of sign up pre-launch if they were excited. So we had about 120 people on the mailing list before we launched. You know, we did a big countdown, got people excited through MailChimp and all that. Um, you know, we sold like about seven minutes after we launched, we sold our first order. And I was like, oh my God, this is great. And it was like a hundred quid. There was like nine bottles. Oh, wow. And which is incredible. And then I thought, this is how it's going to be. This is great. And then it just completely dried up after. <laughs> <laughs> it was that one, that one super keen person jumped on it and everyone else was not really not bothered. Well, that's such a build up too, isn't it? So you've done your, now got all the stuff set up, you're getting your bottles, you're ready. Your website goes live. Yeah, you, you reach out. You're like, boom, big sale. Yeah, you're watching. You're watching all the emails and all the notifications, waiting for it to start rolling, and it just doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and you, not to mug off other podcasts, but you, you see, like um, Guy Raz, his show, which is the entrepreneurship one. But they were talking about Airbnb and stuff, and, and things where people release these platforms. All of a sudden, they go nuts, and then sometimes you expect that, don't you? You're like. Okay, how I built this. That's what I was thinking of. And, you go, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, and then the server crashed. And I think some somewhere in the back of your brain, you're kind of going, all right, here we go. Like this is now going to be all this works. And so this sale comes in and then immediately after it was just nothing. Yeah. And I, and I think we, we, we did have that moment you talked about. So obviously then COVID hit because we were thinking, right, okay, so how is this business really going to look? We've got the product out there. What's next? 
and we thought, well, you know, a D2C channel selling directly to consumers, realistically, to, to acquire customers, to build a brand online, it's just going to yeah. be, we're going to need millions. We don't have that. So as much as it was, it's a great product, you need deep pockets if you want to do that. So we thought, right, it's going to be a trade business, hotels, restaurants, airlines, maybe go to get the volume that way. And that's what that was the intention. Obviously, then COVID hit and just decimated every single one of these industries. Yeah. And it was that moment where I was just thinking, do I just shelve the project? Is this just, it's just not going to work. I don't know what to do. We're not selling anything. No one's buying it. You know, is this the end of the line for Tom Sabano? And it was, there was a real moment like that. Um, but then it was just this, you know, that creative idea in your head pops in and says, well, the fact that people are locked down, maybe they want cocktails delivered to their homes. Maybe that's a good idea. And so straight away, okay, well, let's try that. Let's do some Facebook ads. Let's kind of put it out there, create a few video ads, photo ads, pushing the fact that you can get cocktails delivered in lockdown. And you know, I thought we had about four months worth of stock in the warehouse and it sold in eight days Wow! Right after that. So that was that moment where it just suddenly starts snowballing and you're like, okay, let me do do the forecasts of what we sold today. Let's work out how many days of stock we've got left. And I was like, when, when, the, when the numbers came out, I was like, that can't be right. Yeah. And like, how many cocktails can we make a day? We still can't catch up. We still can't keep up with demand. So we actually had to switch our marketing off because we couldn't fulfill the orders. And right, right, what do we do next? We need to hire more people, you know, up production, make things faster. You know, good problems to have. Yeah. And it is actually quite encouraging. I mean, not to say encouraging. Obviously, if you look at today's environment and you look at COVID, obviously loads of people have lost their business and industries have been hit really hard. But I think it's also encouraging to see that you know other businesses can thrive in, in different market environments. And actually, this drive towards your personal brand, it, you know, well, it's horrible, it was a bit of an opportunity for people to try something a bit new, you know, have something delivered to their home that's going to be a bit different. You know, and and what an incredible opportunity, like just also that there's a working product here, maybe a little bit faster. You might might still have experienced it, but it might have just taken a bit longer, whereas opposed maybe this all hit and it gave you a little bit of a boost initially. Yeah, definitely. And, and I would say to anyone thinking about, you know, coming up with ideas and how to enter the market, when you've got an established status quo, it's very hard to break into that. You've got the big boys who they've, they've set the rules of engagement. You know, it's very hard to break in against these sorts of these sorts of situations. And when you get a big upheaval, a big black swan event like this, everyone's reeling, like all, all bets are off, all the rules don't apply anymore. That's opportunity. That's when the small players can come in because these big players, they can't pivot. They can't adjust their business model. And this is why, you know, all these big spirits brands are really struggling because they live and die by bars and the on trade. And without that, they've got nothing. You know, whereas as a small business, you can jump on a new opportunity that they can't then compete with. So this is the perfect opportunity for an entrepreneur to think, right, what's going to be a good idea and take it to market when there isn't the competition that's going to push you out of the market too early on. Well, and you also the flexibility, not just from being a small company where you can pivot your strategic direction, but I suppose when you're a larger company, there's a lot more red tapes. So there may be, this is how we've always done things. You know, it's like we've, we've looked at different sectors. You know, yeah. one, of, one that comes to mind is when you look at like hand sanitizers and products, right, usually off the shelf with the current pandemic. And, and actually there wasn't the ability to fulfill, fulfill those orders, right? And smaller businesses and companies have tried to step into that gap. But mainly it's from a volume perceived issue. But what I find interesting is that there's still not as much innovation. You know, we're still using the same hand sanitizers, but all of a sudden when there's a new product or a new piece, they're not always coming from the companies that you'd expect, like Dettol or from, you know, I don't know, Ecolab or any of these big companies. They're actually coming from these small innovators and they're actually capturing a good portion of the market because their idea is much more relevant rather than just trying to say, well, this is what we do is we'll just apply it try and apply that same business model to this scenario. Well, funnily enough, I, I know a couple of you know smaller distilleries who were struggling a bit in the market to win against all the big players, like gin distilleries, vodka distilleries. 
you know, they had a product, they were making sales, but they weren't really, you know, financially viable in the long term. They were, you know, thinking maybe this is going to have to be called a day. And then COVID comes along and they start manufacturing hand sanitizer from their distillery because obviously it's alcohol. And so, so many distilleries turn their hand yeah. to rather than making gin, they make hand sanitizer. And now they're booming. Their business is absolutely thriving as a result of it. That's insane. Where are you at today then? So you launch you go at the end of 2019 over 2020, which obviously is still going through a bit of a, which we thought we hoped was going to end. You've just seen sales like ever since that kind of initial swamp when you had to kind of pick up manufacturing and ability. What happened at that stage? Because you were, I guess at that point, you're not on your own. You started to hire a team and a, and a, a business behind you. Yeah, so I mean, it's never been a big team. There's always been like a few people here and there. There's never been more than two or three people helping out with production. Yeah. So it's it's been a relatively small team. And then we were all geared up for all this excitement. Then summer came, lockdown ended, and sales just plummeted. And because everyone was out in the parks, everyone was doing stuff, going to bars, enjoying experiences, enjoying the sunshine. And so we'd planned, you know, a Mai Tai launch. That was a complete damp squib that, you know, we didn't sell any because everyone, with their eyes were elsewhere. And so for a time we were like, okay, was this just a COVID blip? And is this business not actually viable outside of COVID? And that was a big worry we had. Then, of course, it started to pick up come sort of August, September. We had a smashing Christmas um, and it's been strong ever since. Like dry January didn't exist for us. It was one of our strongest months to date. And obviously we're still in lockdown. We've got winter, a lot of factors. So there is there is an element in our in our minds which is like okay let's just be aware that at some point COVID is going to end let's make sure the business is still relevant when it does. Yeah, and I guess now that you've experienced that through a few of the pieces where lockdown where when lockdown ends people are going back to us. It's like all right, how do you also pivot your own business to make sure that when when that does happen you're able to react to it. And one of those is, and I, I think I was reading, it was on your Instagram, but it's like partnerships that you've done with, say, like John Lewis. So you, those sort of relationships, I think, could probably carry you past what, what COVID will be, right? Being on some of these major platforms or being, you know, finding new ways to reach your audiences. Exactly. I mean, so there's, there's two things, I suppose. One of them is that bottle cocktails, premium cocktails, having them at home, never used to be a thing. Like no one really did it before. And now we've been in lockdown for so long that virtually everyone's tried it. Everyone is aware of it. They've had been sent a few bottles. So it's on people's radar now. And, you know, if they see it out there, they're more likely to buy it as a present or a gift or just for a night in or a date night. So, you know, we've, we've got a bit of education here that people know that this product is available now. It can be part of their lives. So that didn't, wasn't the case before. So we've got that on our sides. But secondly, as you rightly said, it's diversification. You know, if you if you put all your money into gold, you're completely exposed of gold plummets. Yeah. What you've got to make sure is that if the circumstances do change, that you've got something that's going to protect you from that. So you've always got to think about what is my current market? If it's cocktails at home, people want to drink because they can't go out, they're stuck at home. Well, what happens when they can go out? You know, you've got to make sure that people still have a reason to buy. So don't just be direct to consumer. So for, for us, it's about diversification this year. It's about being in retail channels. It's about getting into hotel supply. It's about, you know, when some of these other industries pick up, you know, like cruise ships, airlines, duty-free travel, these industries will come back online and they'll be looking to try new things, try and get people back. They want to keep operations simple. So it's always about thinking about where there's another opportunity to make sure that even if one area of the world is hit hard, that your business has still got plenty of other revenue. Because for us, it's about sales. It's, it's about how many bottles of cocktail we sell. As long as, you know, we, we sell it for a different price on every channel. Obviously, to the retail channel, we sell it differently to, say, a hotel. But as long as we're making margin and as long as we're making a profit on it, it's just literally how many bottles do we sell over the year, over five years. It doesn't matter where we sell them. We've just got to sell them. Yeah. 
I think you've got an incredible idea of looking at, like I think of airplanes and trains. I mean, now obviously not the, the best time to be looking at those markets, but that is incredibly where you sometimes are just getting like a rum and coke, you know, or you're just getting a beer or, or you know, or maybe not the best wine, depending on what cabin you're in. I guess those sort of industries and kind of looking at how you can apply your product, obviously you give it some longevity. And I think I've just would really enjoy having a nice cocktail, knowing that they don't have to have a, a bartender at the front of the plane in order to do so. But it's, it, it kind of does bring it to some of those industries, which I think will be um, really fascinating to see how that develops. Because as this closes down and things start to open up back up again, there's still you know, more opportunity, I suppose. It's just getting in with some of those big brands or with those big businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, thinking about what your brand is, and I think that's what's really important for us. And that's what makes a product last beyond a a trend or a moment in time is that if you start to build an actual brand, because it's, that's what people remember. That's what people buy into. It's fine. It's it's a liquid in a bottle. Great. That's, this helps me out during lockdown, but beyond lockdown, what does this product mean to me? And for Tom Savano, that's all about recapturing beautiful travel memories through a beautiful craft cocktail. That's in a nutshell what we're trying to do. Uh, you know, we're not selling a cocktail; we're selling an experience, a memory, a, a, a way that you can immerse yourself in being on the Amalfi Coast, even if you're sitting in a rainy bedroom in Surrey. And that's why it's perfect for somewhere like airlines, because you know you're on an airline because you're going somewhere, you're getting excited, you, you want to sort of feel like you're almost there already, like start the party early, you're off to Italy, great, sit and enjoy a Negroni while you think about this beautiful holiday you're about to have. You know, that's that's where the great sort of brand comes in and the story of Tom Savannah himself kind of elevates the experience for you. Well, James, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on today. One, I've learned a huge amount about where you've come from in your story, and I think people can learn so much from what we've picked up today. But alternatively, congratulations for getting your business to where it is now. I'm sure there's still a lot of work ahead of you, for, ahead of you. but I guess if, if for our listeners listening in, how can they get their hands on one of your, your premium cocktails? And I guess, which one's your favorite? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it was the margarita until recently. Like, I that's always been my go-to cocktail. I love a good Tommy's margarita, but the Manhattan's actually recently overtaken it. And the funny thing was, I'd never tried a Manhattan before <laughs> I launched it. Because that's ballsy. I mean, not before I literally launched it, but before I decided to start developing it. <laughs> yeah, right. And literally, I was like, I, I genuinely don't know what a Manhattan's supposed to taste like. So I'm mixing one, but what's the benchmark? What should it taste like? So that was always a bit of a, a difficulty for me. But now that I tried it, it's 100% my favorite. But yeah, as in, in terms of where to get it, obviously we're available from our website, tomsavano.com. Yeah. Uh, we do next day delivery if you order before midday. So it's all you know nicely efficient that way. Or obviously you can find us on John Lewis and leave us a good review there and make sure they keep buying. And, and so far, are you guys focusing primarily on the UK market or can people around Europe have access to what's your plans for? We send the odd bottle to Europe because mm. we get a lot of corporate inquiries. Like if you've got a business and you want to do like a, a team Zoom drinks or a Christmas party or thank the founders or a board meeting, all these sort of things, this is perfect. You know, send cocktails to all their houses. Everyone can have a drink and, and hop on. This, this is hugely popular. So, you know, some people have colleagues in you know Spain, Italy, these countries. And so we, occasionally we send bottles over there. It's not very economically efficient but we, we do it now and then we do definitely want to expand internationally so this year it's about conquering the uk we want to be the number one brand in the uk by the end of the year by a comfortable margin you know everyone knows who tom savano is everyone loves a tom savano it's the brand you associate with quality that's that's our, our 12-month goal and then beyond that it's yeah it's hitting some countries it's going to maybe you know some early ones to start with like france Germany, Italy, Ireland, a few sort of low-hanging fruit ones in Europe that are not too dissimilar to us. And then, yeah, America, Asia-Pac, beyond that. 
Really exciting. Well, if you could give yourself one piece of advice to uh, 15 year old, not 15 year old, 15 year ago, James, before he stopped, launched his first company or before he went into business, what do you think is a piece of advice or something that people can take from, from your experience and like you say, maybe help avoid some, some challenges they have in the future? I would say you've got to do the hard work. You've got to become the expert. Don't just rely on your ideas. An idea is where it begins. That's a first step on a million step journey. But if you're relying on other people too much and you don't become the expert in it yourself, you're always flying blind. You don't really know what you're doing. You know. And so all these ideas I had, I was super excited about the cafe, super excited about X, Y, and Z and just immersing myself and enjoying the journey rather than saying, okay, so let's do some research about running a cafe. Let's investigate. Let's talk to people who run cafes. Let's go and work there, go and work in a cafe for four weeks myself. So I actually get a day-to-day understanding so that, you know, one of my favorite things is James Cameron as a director. He he can do everyone's jobs. He can be a director of photography. He can, he pushes the cameraman out of the way sometimes and says, right, I'm going to take this shot, you know, because <laughs> he, he can do all their jobs better yeah. than they can. And that's what you've got to be as an entrepreneur. You Eventually you have to delegate, but you need to be able to do everyone's jobs and understand it well enough. I think that's the biggest advice I'd do. Just don't shortcut, work hard and learn the knowledge. I think it's fantastic that you've learned that, but it's also so apparent to me that I can see that throughout this business, you know, just from us talking about it, how you, where you went with the product, being involved completely from a passion project through even how you've even set up this business now. And you're right, at, at a certain stage, then you get an opportunity to actually be able to know, you know, know your business inside and out for when people come on. That may bring different expertise and knowledge and, and a lot more strengths to the business later down the line, but at least then you've got a good understanding. And you're right, not left in someone's hand. Brilliant piece of advice. But uh, look, James, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm hoping we'll be able to invite you back in a year or so or a little bit later when we see that I'm hoping Tom Savano, you know, breaking ceilings and in everyone's home. And I think I'll definitely uh, order a few bottles for my next team for event. Yeah, I think that's the first point of action. <laughs> No worries. Thanks, James. Cool. Thanks so much for having me on. Really enjoyed it. Hey, thanks for listening. Join us next week as we talk with the CEO and COO of SG Papertronics, the innovators behind the Bureau Meter. And don't forget to subscribe. You can listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, TuneIn, or even on our website at www.breakingthechain.online.